But no, we're a very happy, uh, boisterous, active young family and uh, uh, could not be happier uh, to be a dad and to be a husband. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to come out here and preach, uh, to share the word with a congregation who loves the word of God. And so uh, I, I am in debt to you to let me come out here and, and uh, speak with you uh, God's word. If you would like to turn your Bible to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, you get a PhD in the Old Testament and you're going to preach from the Old Testament. I'm sorry. I pay too much, okay? <laughs> We're going to get something out of it. Turn to chapter uh, 16 of the book of Leviticus. Uh, this will be our text for today. I'm not going to read everything. As we go through the sermon, I'll pick up different uh, verses to discuss them. But to give us uh, uh, a hearing of the word before we preach, um, uh, listen as I read uh, verses 5 through 10 and then uh, uh, 29 through 34. And he, Aaron, or the high priest, shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell to the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the uh, a lot for the uh, yeah for the sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And then skipping to verse 29. And it shall be a statute for you forever, that in the seventh month of the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. This is the word of God. Pray with me quickly. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray, Father, that as we go through this text, uh, that you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive the wisdom and the knowledge and the blessing of your grace that you have put here for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to be uh, sinful in your eyes, but also what it means to be forgiven in your eyes. Father, I pray that as I preach this word today, that you would uh, help me to get out of the way of any distraction, that you would use me as your vessel, that your spirit would work through each of us to bring glory to your name this morning. In Christ I pray, amen. All right, well, I've been a, a Christian for about 15 years now, and uh, the whole uh, idea of what it means to be a, a Christian is obviously something that has uh, grasped me and I have set my life upon as I have gone into ministry, and it is uh, that desire to make what the gospel is about central that I picked this text. 
Because this text essentially is about one major thing. What it means to be forgiven. And to understand what it means to be forgiven, we must understand what it means to be sinful. I believe that those two things need to be put together and held together and understood. And this passage, I believe, in the, in the book of Leviticus, does perhaps one of the best jobs of casting the picture of how sinful we are, and next to that, how great is our forgiveness. And I think that message is something that uh, we need. I remember growing up as a young child, I grew up in a Christian home, I heard the gospel, I knew about Jesus, I knew about the forgiveness of sins, but I can tell you something, for whatever reason, that message never really sank into my heart. And I would spend nights having trouble going to sleep worrying about the judgment of God, worrying that I was not really saved, worrying that my belief was not strong enough in the gospel. And so I worried about the forgiveness of my sins. Do you ever struggle with thoughts like those? Do you ever wonder, can I really be forgiven? I think that is something that haunts many Christians. And I came across a, a story that I wanted to share from another pastor who wrote uh, about a, a person in his congregation named Chuck. I want to share it with you. Chuck was in the hospital. The doctor had just told him that there was nothing left that could be done for his heart. The end was near. Chuck was a successful businessman and had been involved in many Christian organizations. In previous churches, he had served on boards and taught classes. Now he was dying and he was terrified. Chuck carried around a secret that very few people knew. During World War II, he flew bombing missions over Japan, dropping thousands of pounds upon the country. He knew that he had killed hundreds, if not thousands, of people. On his 24th mission, his plane was shot up badly, but he was able to get back to base. His co-pilot, however, died. Chuck was eligible to go home after his 25th mission. But he was so angry about the death of his co-pilot that he signed up for another 25 missions. And after that, yet another 25 missions so that he could kill more Japanese. And he did. After 76 missions, he finally went back home. On his way back to Michigan, he was at a base in California where he met some Japanese prisoners of war. Some of them were very kind and told him that they did not want the war. They just wanted to go back to their home as well. They showed him pictures of wives and children. Chuck's anger turned to fear. He assumed that he had killed some of their wives and children. He began to realize that he had not only killed civilians, but he had signed up to do it. Now, 60 years later, the reality of facing God revealed his deepest fear. He would die and be condemned to hell. Chuck finished his story, tucked his knees under his arms, turned away from me, and stared at the wall. His frail body made even a hospital bed look big. Chuck had heard me preach the gospel for years, but that day it was obvious that while he thought it was true, it just wasn't true for him. His case was different. We will return to Chuck's story a little bit later, but first... Can you relate to Chuck? Do you wonder ever if your sins are too big or too numerous or too great for the gospel to apply to you? 
Do you struggle with doubt that perhaps you are not forgiven? Do you ever think, my case is different? What I have done is the unforgivable thing. Does your assurance ebb and flow depending on whether you're having a good week or a bad week? You're not alone if you struggle with these thoughts. But perhaps some of you are in a completely different place. Perhaps the question that really uh, occupies you is, not can I be forgiven, but why do I need to be forgiven? Perhaps you uh, consider the idea of forgiveness as strange and foreign and perhaps irrelevant. I can relate to this as well. As I grew older, as I went into my high school and my college years, I began to wonder whether this idea of forgiveness really mattered to me. Because to say I need forgiveness was to say I was wrong. And I can tell you, I felt very right. And I felt very happy with the sins that I had chosen to commit. And so the idea of asking for forgiveness was to deny myself of the very things that I thought were good. And so the whole idea of a message of forgiveness was not only something that didn't matter to me, but something that I thought was actually an impediment the life that I wanted. So perhaps you are here today and you might think, do I really need forgiveness? Is forgiveness that important? I have sinned and I've gotten away with it. So what is this message of forgiveness? These two questions, do I really need forgiveness and can I really be forgiven, are the heart of today's sermon. We need to address these questions because doubts about your forgiveness keep you in bondage to sin. They keep you separated from the grace and the joy and the love that God has for you. If you are going to experience the life and the freedom that God desires for you in the gospel, you must face these questions about forgiveness. And that is what I hope today's message helps us do. Now Leviticus 16 is certainly an Old Testament text. It talks about strange things of sacrifice. It talks about goats and none of that stuff is probably first-hand knowledge to any of us. But I hope as we go through this text, we will see a picture that shows us what it means to see sinfulness and then what it means to receive forgiveness. This text, to summarize in brief, was celebrated once a year. In fact, the word celebrate is the wrong word. It was practiced once a year by the high priest to provide forgiveness for the entire nation of Israel. And the way that it was brought about involved two goats. One goat was sacrificed and its blood was taken inside the tabernacle. And the other goat was left alive where the sins of the people were confessed on it and it was driven out to the wilderness, to a place called Azazel. And in this text, I believe we see between these two goats, we see exactly what it is to face our sins. In this text, we are going to see the dimensions of our sinfulness, but also the dimensions of our forgiveness. And to do that, let's start by seeing what the text tells us the dimensions of our sinfulness really is. The text here wants us to see first the depth of sinfulness. The depth of sinfulness. Our fall into sin has created a great distance between us and God's presence. I had Rod provide for you guys a, a, a nice little graphic of the, of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting so that you can look at it and get an idea because what God is doing in the Old Testament is he is creating spaces and creating pictures to help people see exactly what their sin problem is and what atonement looks like. 
And so as we look at this diagram, as we look at this picture, I think you will be aided in seeing what it is to be forgiven. The tabernacle where all of this takes place illustrates two important truths for us. If you look at the diagram, you can see, first of all, that this tabernacle was put in the very center of the people of God. And so it shows God's desire to be present, God's desire to be with his people, God's desire to be in the camp. This uh, is, is God's heart to have fellowship, to have closeness with us. But as you also look at this tabernacle, you'll notice there are many walls, many gates, many spaces of separation. And this is because the God that we worship is a God that is holy. And this holiness requires separation because we are filled with sin. And so as you look at this space, this entire outer wall separates the tabernacle from the camp. And then this area right here with basin and altar is the outer court. And then another space, which is even more holy, called the holy place, is, is uh, separated by another gate. And the only people that can come into this place are priests. But there is yet another gate that separates what is called the holy of holies, or the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it is only uh, one time a year that someone can enter this, this space. And the, the uh, Day of Atonement describes that time, and only one person can go in there, and that is the high priest. But you see what is demonstrated here is that the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people have many barriers. We have fallen into sin, and that has created walls between our enjoying God's presence uh, from enjoying God's um, communion. And God's holiness, as we think about sin, must be understood as the true measure for sin. If you're still in Leviticus, look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. What is being told here is of, of two uh, grave dangers that fall upon those who come into the tabernacle. Uh, Nadab and Abihu were priests who came to the tabernacle and were not in a state of holiness and were, re were not respecting God as holy. And God consumed them with fire. Sin destroys what it does not honor him and does not respect his holiness. And even the high priest, the most holy person in the land, is only allowed to go into this place once because if he goes into it uninvited, he too will be destroyed because he is sinful in the presence of the holy God that he will be destroyed. As we think about holiness and the holiness of God, it boils down to this. God and sin cannot be held together. God and sin cannot be brought together near. Listen to Psalm chapter 5 verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God and sin cannot be held together. If there is sin in you, there is separation from a holy God. And that's 
salvation will eventually become complete. And so as you sit here this morning, as you think about your life and as you recognize your sins, it is typical for us to look at our sins and compare them to one another. To say, well, yeah, I, I, I messed up. I sinned in this area or that area. But look at this person over here. When we measure our sinfulness, when we consider how sinful we are, do you measure your sin against God's holiness? Because that is the standard that is set for righteousness. And when the Bible tells us that God's holiness and sin cannot be brought together, it doesn't matter how small, how insignificant, how excusable your sin may be in your mind. It is a separation from a holy God. And that is a great distance. So we see the depth of sinfulness. The tabernacle also teaches us the height of sinfulness. In, in the Day of Atonement, we see something that I think is, is staggering. It tells us that sin is an offense to God that reaches into his very presence. Sin is an offense to God that goes straight into the heavens to offend God. Look with me at verses 15 and 16 in Leviticus chapter 16. Then Aaron shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. What this text is saying is that God locating his tabernacle in the middle of the camp is introducing into God's presence the uncleanness and the sinfulness of his people. And that pollution from sin moves into ever more holy places in the tabernacle so that uh, Aaron has to take the blood of a goat all the way into the Holy of Holies, all the way to the Ark of the Covenant to purify it from the pollution and stain that sin is creating. What we have described here is the fact that the pollution, the offense of sin does not just stay around the person, it goes straight into the presence of God. The Bible doesn't talk about sin as simply do's and do's, do nots. Sin is described as pollution. And we know something about pollution, right? You can go mow your, your grass with your, your lawnmower, but turning off the lawnmower does not end the effect of that engine burning. It's put pollution, it puts haze in the, in the air, and enough of that makes it hard to breathe. We know what pollution is like. And God is saying that your sin is a pollutant as well. Your sin is like a dye drop, dropped into a, a glass of pure water. Eventually that dye seeps into every uh, molecule of that water until the whole water is cast with that color. Your, 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 your sin is like an odor. Even when the, a, a particularly... Uh, odorous person leaves the room, you can still smell them because their presence creates an effect that goes beyond just where they are and what they do. And so God is telling us that your sin is like a pollution. 
We know this. We know that sin is not merely uh, an act. It creates long-lasting guilt. It creates long-lasting hurt. And that guilt and that hurt can go well past the time when forgiveness or apology or acceptance has come. That hurt is a taste of the pollution. We know the feeling of impurity. We know how an impure thought infects our entire mind. And that is what God is telling us about sin. But you know what? Our sensitivity to sin is so minuscule compared to God in his holiness. God is incredibly sensitive. My wife has allergies. I don't. But she knows when it's allergy season painfully. God is like that with sin. He knows painfully the pollution of sin. It agitates him. It offends him. It is thrust ever closer to his presence. The pollution of our sin is even seeping into God's holy sanctuary, his very presence. And what must a holy God do in the presence of sin? Sin and holiness cannot coexist. This sin that is being pushed closer and closer into God's presence is inciting his wrath, is inciting his opposition, is, is fomenting him in anger because he cannot be in the presence of sin. This might be a hard image to grasp, and so pardon me for using one that may seem a bit uh, profane, but how do you react in those very unfortunate situations when you walk into a public restroom and are confronted with an unflushed toilet? What, what does your mind do? Oh, that's nice. I'll use this one. Do you, do you think that? No. The picture of an unflushed toilet makes your mind recoil. You run from that stall. You get away from that stall. And if you can't get away from that stall, you flush it away as fastly and as disgustedly as you can. The picture of an unflushed toilet is an adequate picture of what your sin in the presence of God feels like. And this ceremony is telling us that our sin is an unflushed toilet being pushed closer and closer to God. And it is only his forbearance that stops him from flushing us away. It is only his mercy and his patience that keeps him from reacting as his holiness demands and sending us away from his presence. The height of our sinfulness is that it stands in front of God to offend him continually. And so this ceremony teaches us that such contamination can only be purified by the sacrificing of innocent blood. That is what the goat is sacrificed for, to cover the offensive stench and pollution of our sin in the presence of God. That blood is sprinkled in its place to be a detergent to the sinful offense of our sin. And so we see that an innocent blood is the only thing that can purify and turn away the offense of our sin. My question is, as we, as we think about the height of our sinfulness, have you faced it? Have you considered that your sin 
irrespective of the damage it does in your personal lives, irrespective of the damage it does in your workplace, irrespective of the damage it does with your family or your friends, is first and foremost an offense to God. Have you grasped that? Have you come to to the place that David was when he considered his sin in Psalm 51 against you? You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sin. Because the greatest damage that your sin does is not on the horizontal level, as terrible as those can be, and we're all familiar with that. The greatest damage that our sin does is it incites the wrath of God. So we've seen the depth of sinfulness, we've seen the height of sinfulness. Let us now consider the width of sinfulness. In this passage, we also see that sin creates an infinite and eternal separation from the goodness of God. Let us look at the second goat, verses 20 through 22. And when Aaron has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So there is this second goat. The first goat has to go in to purge the offense of our sin in God's holy sanctuary. But the second goat is going to be sent and banished away from the camp as far as physically possible. Recognize that the sins of the people are confessed by the priest as he places his hands on the head of the goat. That is a way of transferring to the goat the guilt and the sinfulness of the people. Saying, this goat bears our sin. That is what is being communicated. And the sins that Aaron confesses, in the Hebrew, he uses the words for big, intentional, uh, rebellious sins. But he also uses the word for run-of-the-mill, forgotten, unintentional sins, accidental sins. Both the large sins that we all detest, but also the small sins that we do so often we forget about them. Both of those sins are placed upon the head of this goat. And every kind of sin, the big and the small, have the same end. Both of them must be sent out of the camp from the presence of God. What does that mean? Even if you have gotten through life without one big sin, but you have gone through life and you've committed a small sin, one that you think is forgettable, one that doesn't even hang in your mind more than a moment, even if that is the extent of your sinfulness, if there is no sin bearer, it will carry you into the outer darkness. If that sounds extreme, once again, we are not measuring our sins against a holy God. But when we see a holy God, it makes sense. Because holiness and sin cannot dwell together. Now, what is the place that this goat is sent? The, the text here tells us it goes to Azazel. Azazel, uh, most scholars believe, describes the place of demons. 
in the Old Testament. It was the domain of a, of a demon by the name of Azazel. And so the idea here is that this goat is sent out of the camp, sent away from the holy presence of God, sent out of the camp, and sent an infinite distance into the domain of demons, never to return. In short, I believe we have a picture here of hellish torment. This is where the, sin, the, the second goat goes, never to return. The second goat then shows us that the punishment due for our sins is severe. It is total banishment. I read to you the words of Jesus who said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Part from me, workers of lawlessness. The workers of lawlessness will depart from the presence of God and join the same place, Azazel. That is the description. Have you then considered the end of your sins? If God is holy, is there anywhere else that our sins can take us but, from his, but away from his presence? Is there any place that can be our end? Do our plans to save ourselves measure up? I think we need to ask that. We look at the Day of Atonement, and in verse 33 and 34 that I read earlier, we see that this is done every year. And as we recognize it's done annually, we recognize that even the Day of Atonement, even this ceremony that God has given the people to cleanse them of their sins, is inadequate. There are several features in this text that show us that the Day of Atonement was not enough to remove the depth, the height, width of our sins. There was a veil that continued to separate God and his people even at the end of the day. That veil between God's holy of holies and the camp remains in place. The priest himself was too sinful to be able to provide a perfectly righteous sacrifice. And the, the whole ceremony has to be repeated year after year, indicating that the, that the forgiveness that was given on this day was temporary at best. So if that very ceremony was inadequate, was unable to measure up to the height and width and depth of our sin, how much less adequate are our own efforts? How many of us are truly trusting in the fact that we are doing really good works? We have spent our time doing good things and helping people. How many of us are finding our confidence in the fact that we are staying away from the really big sins? How many of us are measuring ourselves against other sinners and making ourselves feel okay about our situation? How many of us are actually just blocking the idea of a holy God and pounding our heads with the idea, well, God is love, God is love, God is love, there can be no judgment. How many of us are using these to justify and excuse and find peace? But let me ask you, will any of these really deliver you? Will any of these answers stand in front of a holy God? I fear they do not. And so if we look at this, if we look at the depth and the height and the width of our sinfulness and the fact that our efforts to atone for our own sins don't measure up, are we to despair? Are we to lose all hope? Has our problem grown so big there is no salvation? We should dwell there more often. 
Because it is in recognizing the, the size of our sinfulness that we truly come to a broken-hearted cry for deliverance. And in that moment, we do not despair. Because in Christ, we find a salvation that is great enough to forgive every dimension of our sinfulness. How wide is Christ's sacrifice? Christ on the cross cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taken outside the camp. He suffered. He endured the darkness and the separation and the full wrath of his God as he hung upon the cross. He bore all our sins. He was the perfect sin sacrifice. In him they are paid in full. In him your sins are as far from you as the east is from the west. That is the size of the width of the sacrifice of Christ. Amen? How high is Christ's atonement? Christ alone has entered the heavens by his own blood. By his own blood, he has gone to the heavens and blotted the stain and the pollution of our sin before a holy God. He has covered every offensive sin that would generate his wrath and completely cleansed it by his very precious blood. Hear what the author of Hebrews says. Hear it in light of the tabernacle. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ reaches the heavens and covers the full height of the offense of our sin. And finally, how deep is Christ's reconciliation? How deep? Christ has torn the veil, separating God's most holy place from his people. No longer because of Christ's death are we unable to enter God's presence and enjoy him and know him as Father. Christ has ripped the veil never to be restored. In Christ, we are able to be brought in with no separation into the presence of a holy God and to enjoy him in all his magnificence for today and forever. Here again from Hebrews, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ has covered the full width of our sin, he has covered the full height of our sin, and he has removed the full distance, the full depth of fall from our sin. The Day of Atonement teaches us the horrifying dimensions of our sin. You are unbelievably sinful. I am unbelievably sinful. 
But the Day of Atonement also teaches how great is our salvation in Christ. His atonement removes the separation, the height, and the depth of our sin problem and brings us into perfect fellowship with a holy and loving God. What a great salvation. What a great salvation. Have you received this gospel? Gospel. Have you put your faith in this gospel? Is this gospel filling you with life and joy? I must beseech anyone who remains unmoved to seek forgiveness for their sin. Your sin has you in a most dangerous predicament. God's forbearance will not go ever. Moreover, God has offered you such a great salvation in the blood of his own precious son. What can you possibly expect if you neglect this salvation? I fear this sermon hasn't scratched the surface. Please repent and put trust in Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Finally, for those who struggle with experiencing assurance because of your guilt, because of your questions about whether you can truly be forgiven, please draw close to Christ. He is a Savior big enough to forgive each and every sin that you have committed. He forgives you completely. In him is full release from the burden and, uh, of, of, of your sin and your guilt. And so I would like to conclude by taking us back to Chuck's story, to turn again to him lying there helpless under the crushing weight of his sin and hear how the pastor addressed him. I sat silent and tried to imagine the weight of Chuck, you are a big sinner. But Jesus is a bigger Savior then you are a sinner. Chuck responded like he hit the lightning. He looked at me like he had heard this for the first time. His eyes got big, his face was animated, and he said, that's it, isn't it? Jesus is a bigger Savior than I am a sinner. Chuck died two weeks later. The joy of his life in those last two weeks made it evident to everyone who visited him that his chains were broken. His heart was free. What Chuck has learned to be true for him is true for you. You are a big sinner, but Jesus is a bigger Savior. Come to him, trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be forgiven fully and forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the message of forgiveness. Thank you that you have shown us how great is our sin. Father, it is high, it is wide, it is deep. And as we think of that, Father, we crumble and despair, or at least we should. But Father, we also come in joy as we consider that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to make atonement for us by his precious blood. And so, Father, I pray for this congregation, what Paul prayed for his in the book of Ephesians. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in this church and every member's hearts through faith, that, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, I pray that this church would know the height and the width and the depth of the love of Christ that is provided for us at the cross. Let us find full peace and assurance in that. And if there's anyone that is still withholding, Father, I pray that you would break that heart and bring them to Christ. In Jesus I pray, amen. All right, I'm supposed to finish this thing, right? Um, we're reading, we're going to do hymn 653. Hymn 653.